Ever wondered how to bring the magic of nature play into your child's education? Or how to say goodbye to your worries about snakes and ticks? Well, with Nature Play Now, crafting an epic outdoor program is easier than you think. You'll boost your confidence, skill sets, and have parents eager to enroll. Join the adventure for just $57 exclusively for Raising Wildlings listeners. Visit our Raising Wildlings website for more details today. Imagine a place where it is believed the kids are more capable than we know. So capable that they make roller coasters and treehouses from concept through to the fill build using real tools and the secret ingredient, time. What I'm describing is the tinkering school. And today I have the man behind the concept joining me all the way from the USA, Gay Vitale. Welcome to Raising Wildlings, a podcast about parenting, alternative education, and stepping into the wilderness, however that looks, with your family. Each week, we'll be interviewing experts that truly inspire us to answer your parenting and education questions. We'll also be sharing stories from some incredible families that took the leap and are taking the road less travelled. We're your hosts, Vicky and Nikki from Wildlings Forest School. Pop in your headphones, settle in and join us on this next adventure. Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded, the Kabi Kabi and the Gubby Gubby people. We honour their song lines and storylines and pay respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which you are listening to this episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Raising Wildlings podcast. I'm your host, Vicky Oliver. Guys, I did a little thing last week. I pressed publish on our Patreon site. Um, So we had some gentle, loving pushing from some of you, our incredible family of listeners. And so we finally started our own Patreon page. And when I say finally, it's been sitting there for over a year and I finally pressed publish just last week. So if you don't know what Patreon is, it's a way for content creators like ourselves to let our most passionate listeners support our creative work via a monthly membership. So you can be an active participant in our podcast. At the moment, we have set up just a general support pledge, which we've set at five Aussie dollars per month, with the aims of adding a few different tiers based on what our patrons would like to access to. So it could be exclusive content, uh, an exclusive community, or an insight into our creative process. Um, And we will build that based upon what our patrons would like to see. In exchange, With your help through the membership, we get the freedom to create our best work and the stability we need to keep this podcast going. So uh, for those of you that don't know, we actually employ three people to put this together. So besides Nikki and myself working on the interviews, we also have um, Josh, who's our amazing editor, Lindsay, who uploads all of the content and um, gets the podcast out into the world, and Ellen, who transcribes the podcasts for us. So that process does take uh, about a full day of work to get this out into your ears and the Patreon will help us to make sure that we can continue creating this podcast that we love so much. And talking about giving you our best work, today I have the absolute pleasure of chatting with Gaver Tully. Now, for those of you who haven't heard his name before, he's an American writer, speaker, computer scientist, but more importantly for the purposes of this episode, he's the founder of the Tinkering School, which is a summer camp that we're going to talk about in a minute. And then progressively we'll talk about another thing that he has created, which is the Brightworks School, which centers around the concept of students learning learning through self-directed means and building projects. He's also the co-author of 50 Dangerous Things You Should Let Your Children Do, um, which he co-authors with Julie Spegler, um, which we didn't get to talk about today, but definitely should check that out come the end of this episode. His TED Life, uh, so his TED Talk, sorry, Life Lessons Through Tinkering is not only one of my favourites, it's only four minutes long, and it's one of those inspirational moments that we had that helped us to continue our aim of empowering children through exploration and curiosity at Wildlings. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Gaver, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's wonderful to be here, Vicky. So the first time I actually saw or heard anything about you was your little video. It was a four minute long TED talk, Life Lessons Through Tinkering. And I can't believe something that was so short could capture 
something like I just loved it so much. So we'll link that for people to go back and have a look at. So I'd love to know where you got started. How did the tinkering school, well, I'll start with tinkering school. How did, how did that become a reality? <laughs> well, um, the origin story is uh, charming and somewhat apocryphal at this point because the details are a little, <laughs> you know, I've had to tell the story enough times that it's been polished into a gem. But, um, yeah. but I love to tell it because I also think it's evidence that Sometimes we need to put our money where our mouth is, as we say here in the, mm-hmm. in the U.S. You need to stand up for the ideal that you believe in. And the way that journey started for me was, first off, um, I'm talking you, to you today from uh, very near where I grew up. I'm up visiting my brother in Northern California. Uh, it's a very remote part of California, um, which, I mean... In Australian standards, probably not that remote, but <laughs> in the U.S., it's considered uh, fairly out in the woods. And um, my brother and I grew up, uh, you know, in a household where both of our parents worked. And when we got home, there was often nobody there. And we ran around in the woods with our friends. And we had a beach very near our house. And those kids in that neighborhood, like when we went down and played on that beach, oftentimes the only footprints on that beach for a week practically would just be ours. You know, it was idyllic and magical in all those ways that those places are. But, um, you know, as a young adult and uh, looking back at my childhood, I thought of that as a very formative time. Right. This Mm -hmm. chance where my brother and I were able to sort of meet the world on our own terms and invent things to do because we'd just gotten so bored that we felt like our bones had turned to jelly, you know, like (laughs) that, that painful boredom that kids experience. And, you know, playing around in that environment, we just we had so much autonomy and agency with what we did with our time and where we put our energy. And we just had to be home by dark to meet the parents for mm. dinner, right? And and everybody knew that we were somewhere out and about and neighbors were, we were in and out of all of our friends' houses and nobody had telephones. So it wasn't like you could just call and find, you know, the kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, so years later, my adult friends are having children of their own and as those kids age, I'm noticing that even my best friends from childhood who have now grown up and had kids are not letting their kids do the kinds of things we mm-hmm. had done. Yeah. And this was the first time I noticed that in a single generation, this behavior was changing radically. This interpretation of you know, children as fragile and needing to be protected, but also we have to make sure they're always doing something important and meaningful because time is precious and being overscheduled, you know, all of this was like evident in these emergent behaviors. And I started paying attention to this and I became that annoying friend who's like (laughs) always pointing these things out. And, you know, it it got to the point where one of my friends was like, you know, our parents just didn't know what they were doing. Like they, those were not good parents. And, and I just can't, like, I can't rewrite my history. My parents had plenty of problems, but they did. That wasn't one of them. Yeah, they did love my brother and I, and they did, Mm. you know, um, I think, you know, we turned out okay. And what they gave us, instead of overmanaging our time, what they really gave us was a, a chance to, like, face adversity and have to evaluate and mitigate sources of risk and danger on our own, like to get good practice yeah. at it, right? So absolutely. So there I was a few years later at my wife's uh, company's Christmas party. And I was practically standing up on my soapbox at the dinner table. (laughs) And, 
you know, and I was just, I was like laying out all of this evidence I had collected. And a few of the parents were like, you don't have children, so you don't know what it's really like. And, and yeah, sure. Fine. I, I don't, but, but I do know what it's like to be a kid. And I do know that, yeah. you know, kids have self-preservation instincts that are very strong. So you, you have to, um, you have to give them room and a, and a chance to exercise those things. You know, they have to eat a little dirt mm. in order to strengthen their immune systems. They have to do a few bumps and scrapes to realize a bump and a scrape is nothing to be worried about. You know, and so to mitigate that, I guess that fear of that parents have yeah. is that I guess that's where you come in is that you're the bridge between yeah. allowing them to go out to the wild and do it on their own, yeah. and doing it somewhere where they can have some support, right. So what I spun up at that dinner table was, uh, you know, I basically suggested someone should make a camp where nervous parents can send their kids and, mm. and we don't, we just don't tell them what goes on at the camp. <laughs> <laughs> and by the end of the night, I had five children signed up for this camp that I was evidently going to give a few months later. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, awesome. Yeah, they showed up. We, my wife and I, assembled IKEA bunk beds and put them in the guest room. And um, two parents from across the United States sent us their children on an airplane because I had wow. put a little ad in a in a maker community, and uh, I just said, you know, new summer camp starting, and I left an email address and. People sent me email saying, "Like, you know, would you would you take my children for a week?" Wow! And it was incredible. Um, that week, you know, started as a little bit of a put up or shut up kind of moment, and turned out to be this transformative event in my life. Hey, it's Nikki here interrupting this episode to quickly say if you're like us and feeling torn between your career as an educator versus your beliefs for child development, then we've created a five-step e-guide to unlock your purpose without compromising your values. This treasure map is completely free, takes just 10 minutes and is available from our Raising Wildlings website. So why not dive in and see how you go? Okay, now back to the episode. absolutely phenomenal i um i guess one of the things when i watch that i think oh it's so I'd, I'd love to i mean we do a certain amount of tinkering in forest school but it's nothing like what you guys do with tinkering school my thing i'm just so not physics minded and so i really worry that i wouldn't be able to and i guess that's the whole point right it's not about adults teaching yeah um so how do you manage children coming up with things that evidently won't work (laughs) and I know that this is all part of the process right you can can talk this through but I'm just thinking that from this like as my instant reaction (laughs) and without all of my you know the knowledge and the theory that I know about children and and the whole process but how do you go about letting them make mistakes and when do you step in when something may not be like might actually be really unsafe yeah so a couple of things about this idea of unscripted engineering projects with children. And there are, there are a lot of arts elements, you know, the, the design elements and conversations about how we're going to paint or decorate and things like that include uh, a lot of the arts, but in, in point of fact, tinkering school is really, I would say, focused primarily on developing the skills of collaboration and secondarily on executing amazing engineering projects. (laughs) So you'll see sometimes that we, we compromise on, um, we'll compromise on engineering in support of working out difficult communication issues or things like that so that the kids all feel connected to their project and they, have an authentic sense of ownership. But uh, that being said, when it comes to engineering, our guidance internally to the staff is we're there to prevent catastrophic failure. Like we don't want anything that's going to put a child in the hospital. 
We don't want anything that's going to leave a, like a serious permanent mark. You know, if a child cuts their finger when they're whittling on a stick, that's, that's a story to tell later in your life. That, exactly. You know, that, that's okay. That's a, that's a punctuation mark. Um, 100% agree. The, yeah. So our job is to look for those moments where they're about to stress the thing that they've built in such a way that it might collapse suddenly and catastrophically and prevent that from happening yeah. and you know intervene and what I love is our goal is to point them out point that out to them long before it becomes a problem so that they've fully integrated mm-hmm. the problem in their minds so just to talk you through a scenario from a recent week at camp uh, this summer you know, the kids are building what amounts to a giant rectangular box. <laughs> and a lot of projects are boxes in disguise. You know, are yeah. you building a school bus or a castle? Well, we can't quite, <laughs> yeah. we can't quite tell right now. <laughs> like, you know, ask us again in yeah. a day or two. <laughs> but, um, I mean, they start out with the intention of building a specific thing. Let's say it's the castle, right? And and we know that at a certain point, they're going to want to get on the upper floor of the castle. And so as the castle is being assembled, we're looking for opportunities to show them like, hey, these walls are pretty tall. That means we're going to be this high above the uh, asphalt of the playground here. Like, do we feel like this is starting to be safe enough to climb? And, mm. and so that conversation starts early so that they start that thinking about how do I take the wiggle out early, right? Yeah. And they also understand as part of the narrative of being there that it's up to them to make it safe enough to climb. And so that becomes a inbuilt success criteria for them. Like we're their own personal narrative doesn't say that they're done until they can climb on it. And we can't climb on it until it's safe enough to hold all of us. So yeah, the last part of that is ritualizing the testing process, right? Like when you think your castle is ready to climb, the first thing we're going to do is we're all going to walk around and kind of push on it and see does it feel sturdy? Like we're trying to build that intuition of what strong is, what strong engineering is. The next part is let's find the test pilot. <laughs> and that should be the littlest person at camp because they're going to put the less, the least stress on it. So often that'll be this, you know, tiny little girl or boy who is now like, anointed as the test pilot and they're going to go up that ladder and creep out and we have to be absolutely silent so we can hear if any of the wood is creaking or bending you know cracking if there's any noises Mm. and then it's freeze and we evaluate and adult staff come in and check and see is this like just settling or is this you know, and so the kids see us do these processes that transfers that knowledge and ability to them. And that way, after they've gone to camp for a year or two, they can actually lead the testing ritual. Brilliant. Right. So that's our goal is to constantly eliminate their dependence on us to evaluate their work so that they can evaluate it for themselves. And I guess my my initial, um, and, and this is what happens, um, concern comes from the fact that I'm assuming and I'm forgetting that you're giving children copious amounts of time right. to do this. Right. It's not like they're just there for an hour, two hours, three hours or a day. They've actually got time. So they're not rushing. So may, maybe that's what I'm, I'm envisioning children rushing to enjoy the project before so they don't go through that process because they're so worried that they're not going to be have have time to to play with it right right and that can be a concern when you're doing it as an after-school program or you have to force it into Mm. 45 minute period at a school right um exactly yeah so that's a um 
I mean, uh, uh, we could talk for hours about the ways that traditional school format undermines the undermines the intellectual and emotional development of children. Uh, not least of which is interrupting their thought process every forty-five minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> um, yeah. But um, I do think that even in those contexts, there is something that we can do, and it's not always going to be building something large enough to climb on, right? Yeah. It it may be that what we're testing is something that you built on your desktop. You know. Um, mm. or it's, it's purely an apparatus that we threw together to test a physics idea. Right. I mean, it, yeah. you know, we, like how, you know, a typical like middle school, high school, um, physics provocation might be like, how does the angle of the ramp relate to the speed of the ball when it rolls across the table? Right. Mm. And so you have some apparatus to build and you're you're doing that testing. I like it when like you keep coming back to the apparatus to try and make it more precise, you know, like Mm. we're measuring down to half a second right now. Can we measure, can we set something up so that we can capture enough information to capture down to a 10th of a second so we can really know how fast the ball is going. The classroom, I think, is an incredible opportunity sometimes to iterate because we just have these little short periods of time, right? And so Mm -hmm. if we can build something that doesn't take us too many days of just 45 minutes a day, then we can immediately turn around, turn the conversation around to improvement and Mm. And I think that's actually one of the great secrets of tinkering school is that there's this, yes, we've built this thing, but we also like in the process of getting to done, we, we sort of built and unbuilt and rebuilt, you know, in this kind of ebb and flow of progress until we had a solution that got us there. And oftentimes that meant taking something completely apart in order to mount the wheels on the go-kart better or, you know, like yeah. all of those things are issues. Yeah. I um, I love that about tinkering and about a, a lot of the alternative ways of our schools the same is that um, emphasis that failure isn't a bad thing. Right. And that nothing that has ever been invented ever has been born out of a bright idea straight off the bat, perfect. <laughs> and, and I think children haven't really learned that. I think a lot of adults still haven't learned that, and that's what I think is so valuable. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I, I, I think you're spot on, Vicky. The It's very difficult to create an opportunity in a typical classroom for children to learn through discovery and iteration. Um, there's too much emphasis put on making progress against a set curriculum. And so all we can test is whether they got the answer right, not whether they did a good exploration of possible answers. And so, you know, we're kind of, I'd like to think that we're inadvertently training students away from um, being able to learn things on their own, you know, like Mm -hmm. autodidactically to chase, to chase something difficult because it's interesting. They look so often now for external validation that this is worth their time or this is going to be on the test that they don't often chase those things. And if they have something that they're deeply interested in, oftentimes parents turn that into a like, oh, we signed you up for after school, you know, math class because you thought this math game was fun, um, which is sort of a like opportunistic hijacking on the point of, on the yeah. part of the parents, yeah. right? And and I, I yeah. can't blame them. I mean, we look for evidence of of engagement, and when we see little sparks of it, we just want to water them and you know <laughs> get them to grow. Yeah, but I think sometimes that can be a um, that can 
take away the agency of the child. You know, they can feel disempowered by you jumping in and turning it into a thing. Mm. I totally cannot um, align with this because um, I homeschool my girls and my eldest, she likes to learn by watching and observing. Yeah. And she's shown interest in things and I said, you know, would you like to do a class to, you know, further your skills or learn something new? And she pushes back at me so much. She's like, Mom, I can figure it out. And my reaction coming, you know, still having to pick apart everything that I know, even coming from a place of knowing different things, um, I'm saying to her, but, you know, someone who's skilled at this might be able to accelerate your learning and and just having to actually sit and listen to what she's saying to me and uh-huh. that, you know what, I don't want to. I'm happy doing it my way. I, I don't want someone else to show me how to do it. And it's hard for us to stop and do that. Yeah, especially I don't know. It, I think it's very difficult for adults. And, and, and Vicky, I'm going to assume you're the most wonderful parent in all of Australia. <laughs> Thank you. But it, there, there could be moments where your relationship to your child makes it difficult for you to give anything that doesn't sound like a little bit, um, for want of a better term, a little bit judgy. You know, mm. because you're saying to her. Um, the fact that you don't want to sign up for a class is telling me that you're not actually committed to this, right? That's right. That you don't have this deeper commitment. And I don't, I don't want to like, I'm not a parent therapist here, Vicki. So please don't read too much. No, no, it's okay. And that's, it's all the unraveling we have to do, right? It's all of the the bits and pieces. Like I'm, that's the open conversation we need to be having those realizations. Even when you, you can ha- I can have this conversation with other people and not see it in my own my own house, and it's so nice for people to point that out. Exactly, exactly, and I do the same. You know, I often have to listen very carefully when parents are giving me advice about how to work with their child, because sometimes I, I mean, oftentimes I experience what we call the little darling effect, which is you've separated the child from the parent, and suddenly we see them on their very best behavior and we never mm-hmm. we never see them being destructive or you know other yeah. negative attributes that parents often see i don't get to yeah. i don't get to see until like months into school right and then we'll see oh she has a tendency to manipulate other children <laughs> to get them to yeah. say nice things about her work and she never says anything nice yeah. about their work <laughs> yeah. yeah like the, yeah because you have to deeply know someone in order to be able to see and and know them over time to see those patterns as well exactly exactly but um that reminds me of something and uh, feel free to cut this off if it's off topic but i've noticed uh, a new like emergent behavior post lockdown in some of the families i've been you know talking to and working with lately and it has to do, I think, with the fact that um, during the COVID lockdown in, in California and other parts of the United States, and I, I think you've had these too, right, where you have to stay in the house unless yep. you're doing, you know, life-supporting shopping. or yep. unless you're an essential worker or you're out exercising for your one hour a day. Exactly, exactly. And um what I'm seeing is kids are exhibiting, you know, now that lockdown has eased a little bit, kids are exhibiting a kind of anxiety because they're like, if I come to visit the household, they're not the center of attention for their parents anymore. Wow. Right? Whereas during lockdown, they're just there, you know, with mm-hmm. 100% of the household's attention, especially for like only children. Um, yeah. And and then all of a sudden, you know, someone else comes in and, and, and the parents are laughing and having fun with this person. And and the child is like, you know, practically doing cartwheels through the dining table in order to get back to being the center of attention. And, you know, like mm. faking little injuries or, you know, suddenly needing a Band-Aid for something. I mean, it, it, like, it, like it comes out in all kinds of goofy, very like much younger child behaviors, right? So it Mm. seems like some of that self-confidence and independence has been eroded by the 
conditions of being locked down together. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Just the um, long-term implications of, of even short periods of time and what this can be doing to the way that our children are perceiving themselves in the world and the way that the world is. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's a little like we've been thrown into space capsules on a space mission that we didn't sign up for, yeah. right? So we have none of the training for no. being locked indoors together for this much time. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, even like, I mean, I'm used to being at home with my children, but when you take away our ability to actually leave the house, <laughs> right, that changes things completely. Yeah. Like that's not how we live our life. That's not what homeschooling looks like to most families. It's not being at home all the time and replicating school. It's being out in the world and, and meeting with people and doing activities. And, and that's what, you know, Adults do as well. They don't, you know, if they don't have a job, it's not like they're sitting at home all day with their family. Yeah. They're out doing things. So it, it's, it is something we're not equipped to handle. Yeah. And we're all just expected to in amongst all of the other stuff that people have to deal with as well. I, I know. And it's, I mean, who knows what this experience will have, you know, 10 years down the road. That's what I've been thinking and talking to people about lately. But one of the things, sort of to loop back around to one of the things that we were talking about earlier, I think there's always a role for direct instruction, like you were talking about with your daughter. Yeah. Of, you know, there's there's wisdom in people who've been working with, yeah. you know, pots and pans and a kitchen stove. Absolutely. You know? And that's, what, that's where it comes from. That's where my concern comes from. Like you could learn so much from someone and then maybe have your own ideas once you have that little bit of information. Yeah. How I deliver that, or, or the message she's getting might be different, though. Right, but there is, uh, you know, I think there's also something to exploring that landscape and coming to that person with a question or a desire mm. that's come from the exploration. Like, I've tried seven ways to make croissants, and they're always terrible. What am I mm. like? What is the actual secret? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So now you're on a quest and this person is, you know, is going to guide you along that quest with some tips and techniques and, you know, sort of supply some of those answers. And now you're going to be able to go back home or, you know, back to your back to your kitchen and and make the croissant you've been dreaming of because you can take what you just learned, combine it with your original inspiration and your new strawberry chocolate croissant is <laughs> sweeping the nation, you know, yeah. or at least. Yeah, so much in that, isn't it? Yeah. So that's sometimes like waiting until she comes back with a question of like, how, how do croissants actually work? Like, I feel like I'm yeah. watching the YouTube video and I'm like, I've read so much about it and it still is not working, you know. It's like, oh, actually, and then you can go from there. yeah, it matters what kind of butter you use, or you know, I mean, it, yeah, yeah, there's a yeah, that's it's important. It's hard for it's hard as parents to to remember to do that sometimes because, yeah, you know, there's all sorts of conditioning that clouds our judgment on and actually stopping and listening to our children and thinking we know best all the time because we're adults. Well, don't you think that's maybe partly because of perspective, like. We yeah. Oh, totally. yeah, we can sort of see all the dead ends they're going to run into. And, and it's yeah. kind of like, oh, you avoid yeah, them. You I, help them. I want you to be enthusiastic and stay excited about this. But if we don't let them raise the stakes um, by experiencing some setback, then the triumph of making that first croissant is lessened, right? We've reduced exactly. the thrill of success if we've given them the recipe, you know, metaphorically yeah, speaking. It is. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that. Yeah. It's definitely um, important to remember those things from time to time because even if you, I, we always say this, even if you know these things, you have to be reminded constantly because there's just so so much to, to being um, a good parent um, or a good yeah. influence in someone's life. Exactly. It doesn't have to necessarily be parenting. Um, if you're working with children, it's, yeah. it's these little things that we have to remember constantly because I'm talking about this particular scenario now, but there's a million other little scenarios that, <laughs> that we go through 
all the time that have different ways of or different ways that we could approach. Yeah. Um, well, and through. I mean, the thing I always tell people is you can't you can't be lying there in bed at night going like, oh, if only I had dot dot dot, or yep. I should have. Yeah. Like as long as you're approaching your child or any child, you know, with all the best intentions and, you know, with a kind of open mind and an open heart, then you are being part of creating a wonderfully positive environment for that child to thrive in. If they push back because they're like, mom, like I'm figuring it out. That's, yeah, (laughs) that's okay too. You, You could just, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's all about being in a relationship and teaching them about how how what that looks like, and that's, yeah. that's not always smooth. And that's a wonderful way to say it. One of the great revelations of Tinkering School for me was that what makes Tinkering School work is not the fact that I have a great big pile of lumber and a whole bunch of power tools. It's that it's focused on the relationship both between the staff. Mm-hmm and the students and the students and the students and that out of those positive collaborations come all the best ideas and all the best work. There's an old saying at NASA from the 1960s during the Apollo space program. And, um, you know, when they had finally gotten the green light from JFK and they were going to go for it, they were underfunded and there was so much they didn't know. And, you know, there are all these like, reasons it could fail and one of the lead engineers wrote on a big sign and stuck it up in the shop where they were building rocket parts it said it won't fail because of me right like i Mm. i don't want it to fail because i didn't try i gave up i and i only learned that story a few years ago but um what really resonated for me is that early effort in tinkering school when we first get that batch of kids to make those connections and get them all on this same sort of adventure together where they share this goal of building this outrageous contraption by the end of the week. They bring that attitude to the to the conversation like you know, we'll find that kid who snuck back up to up to the shop after lights out, not like destruct, destructively <laughs> um, messing things up or something, but furiously working away to try and solve a problem that has been holding them up for a day. <laughs> mm, you know, yeah, and, and and I think that's the when the motivation to work hard on something, whether it's to learn something, how to make a croissant or to, um, to build something that's never been built before a a castle that eight kids can drive down a hill. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If that motivation comes from someplace intrinsic, somewhere inside you, a sense of commitment to your friends uh, and to the idea then there's nothing that'll stop you. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Can you imagine if they take that into adulthood and into workplaces and what could be achieved? I can because I've been working with these kids for 15 years. And some of them... So you see it. Some of them have graduated from college and gone on, yeah. And I guess in your own team, like the the staff that you have working, you'd be seeing that as well. I definitely... And the, the wonderful thing about it is that the same sort of protocol of starting with the foundations of collaboration works at any age. So the school, the summer camp, all of that starts. And so we change the name of our teachers to collaborators. I love that. Absolutely love that. And so that's the title that we use with each other, you know, at school or how we describe someone that we work with. We say, this is my collaborator, Mackenzie. And you know, that's the same thing a child would say, introducing their teacher to someone else. They would say, oh, this is Mackenzie. She's our collaborator. And brilliant. yeah, it, it reframes that whole relationship as this school thing that we're doing, we're working on it together. Like we're, yeah. we're in this together. 
And yes, I think a lot of times the kids end up in a relationship where like they're trying to prove to the teacher that they know something. And so it's necessarily a little bit, even if the teacher is rooting for them, it's still the teacher that's judging their work. Yeah, there's a, that power dynamic yeah, that doesn't yeah. serve children so, in their learning. like even a wonderfully gifted, you know, like I mean, this sounds trite, but many of my very best friends are teachers in classrooms who have to do this. And some of the parents at our school are teachers in public schools and their children go to Brightworks. And they sometimes yearn for that open framework that the Brightworks collaborators mm-hmm. get in order to work with their kids and meet them where they are on a problem instead of constantly making the kids feel like they're behind on the subject. Yeah. It's interesting because I was, I was a teacher before starting Wildlings and in, when we go through the teacher training and they would talk about all of these ways in which children learn and all of these, you know, new, new, not new, yeah. but ways in which um, they know children learn best. But then when you actually step into schools, it's really hard to implement anything new or right. a little bit alternative or any of these things that actually are like they take your breath away when you hear about them. You're like, oh, my gosh, that sounds yeah. so phenomenal. But actually implementing them in a traditional structure is incredibly difficult and you've got so many barriers yeah. and that's why having to found a whole new like start from scratch, which is obviously something you've done with Brightworks. So could you tell us a little bit about Brightworks? Yeah. Um, the school and its vision and how, how it works. It's safe to say that Brightworks was inspired by, you know, six years of working with kids at my camp. And, mm. and you know, there was a point at which it just became a question of, like, this experience is so rich and nuanced and so the kids are learning at an incredible rate. Like, their uptake of new mm. knowledge and the integration of it into something they can apply is so breathtaking <laughs> at its pace Jeez. that, you know, that became the question is, would this work as a school? And it was one of those students who, uh, one of those campers who really asked the galvanizing question that, that I think was the seed that started Brightworks. And she, she paused in a conversation and, she just like looked off wistfully for a second and she said, I've never worked this hard in my life. Why can't school be more like this? And yeah. Right. I mean, even just saying that the hair on my arm, I get goosebumps. (laughs) Mine too. Like my whole body, every hair on my body just stood up on. So that was, uh, that was my friend Serena. And she has since graduated from MIT and works at SpaceX on their satellite communication system. Wow. Yeah. So she, her actual job involves like lasers and space. And what I think is, is true to that question. Why can't school be more like this? She wasn't really talking about the workload. What she was talking about was she's never been as invested in that project as she was. Right. Yeah. And Yep. She went to a very academic high school and got very good grades and went to MIT. It, it doesn't get much more academic than that. But mm. um, I think she never lost that intrinsic motivation of why am I doing this? Right. Yeah, that intrinsic motivation is just so, and I, so underestimated. Like, yeah. So I just see every, so much manipulation of children is through external reward. Right. And then wonder why they don't have <laughs> that intrinsic motivation. They're like, "Oh, I'm, you know, we've we've dangled every carrot. Why don't they want to do it?" You're like, well, "Because you missed the point." They're tired of carrots. Uh, yeah. That carrot, you you keep having to like increase the carrot, and simultaneously right. you increase the threat. Like, if you don't get better grades, you won't get into college. If you don't get into college, yeah. you won't have a career. And if you don't have a career, you'll be what's the point? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much that's what it's i remember that being the feeling like, yeah you know what if you're not the top then what is what is life yeah like that that's essentially what it felt like it felt really heavy sometimes yeah so Brightworks was kind of an answer to that question of why can't school be based on intrinsic motivation 
right? Mm-hmm. You know, to paraphrase Serena's question, it really goes to every child in school should know the answer to the question, why am I doing this? Right? Yes. <laughs> like yep. that, you, you shouldn't just be <laughs> lost in school struggling with whatever it is on the table in front of you. The, my struggle was history. Um, and, and and just asking yourself, like, why? Why am I doing this? When am I ever going to yeah. need to know? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I used to have to argue with kids. They would ask you that question. Yeah. And I'd have to come up with creative answers as to why. Like, you know, you tend, why do I have to learn trig miss? Right. And I'd be like, well, probably this student over here who wants to be a carpenter, uh-huh. he might need to know it. Yeah. The rest of you will, um, okay, let's think creatively. Uh, this is about your brain, using using your brain, and, you know, you have to really dig deep to can try and convince yep. them to to do the work. But if you, and then I'd be like, and after a while I was like, man, really struggling yeah. to give them a good reason. And then if that's the case, <laughs> you know, let's ask some more questions. Oh, my gosh, I'm in a rabbit hole. Yeah. No, I mean, it's such a good yeah. rabbit hole because I think that it reveals so much about the kinds of questions we're sort of trained not to ask at school anymore, right? Exactly. You don't get to ask, you know, this seems like a terrible textbook. Why are we using this textbook? Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, I just Googled it, and this is rated as the worst physics textbook <laughs> in all of California. Like, why are we using, are using it? it? You know, I mean, yeah. Like the, so, um, but I think more importantly, it was also, uh, you know, intrinsic motivation was certainly a big piece of the equation. The second big part goes back to that notion, that foundational notion of collaboration as a fundamental human skill, right? Mm. And that by being excellent collaborators, anything is possible. And when we can't collaborate, when we don't communicate and share in, you know, open, positive, healthy ways, then we don't, um, there's almost nothing that we can do, right? You might have the best idea in the world, but if you, if you can't, you know, describe it in a way that energizes others to work on it with you, it'll never get done. Yeah. Yeah. It's simple. It seems so simple. It's so simple. (laughs) Yeah. But it's actually, it's very hard to produce an environment for that right in a a traditional model it is because the traditional model right started with the prussians trying to make farmers into soldiers and it wasn't about giving people agency and autonomy or supporting their the development of their creative capacity it was really about getting them into a soldier mindset where they would do what you told them that's right yeah yeah, and, then, and it, it's, yeah. it's a, such an unraveling then when you've gone through that system and start to have questions. Um, I don't want my kids to be doing that, at, you know, in their 30s, sort of unraveling yeah. th- themselves or, you know, s- starting to see opportunities that they could have perhaps had when they were younger right. and a confidence in themselves to, to try things and to, to not feel yeah. like, you know, I just I see so many people are talking about, well, this is just the way that it is. This is the way that I've always thought my life was going to be. And they don't question that and they're unhappy. And yeah, it would be so nice for our children to not feel that way. You know, I, I was just thinking about something you said and, and I, I accidentally came up with a counter argument and I just want to try it on you for a second here, Vicki, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is that I'm really like jealous of my friends who can sit down and play a musical instrument and make beautiful music come out of it. And so many of them point back to like, Oh yeah, my parents signed me up for piano lessons when I was seven and I played piano from seven till I was 18. And then I never, I didn't play piano for 10 years. I was done with it. But just lately I've like, you know, I've been, playing on the piano and it's been really wonderful. Mm. And that's like one of those, like one of those anecdotes that I think proves the contrapositive or is the counterpoint where 
it's like, should we sometimes get our kids to do something now? Having said this out loud, (laughs) I, I'm starting to argue with myself because I believe that there's a way you could frame that conversation around the piano that was coming authentically from conversations you were having with your child about music and, and then giving them piano as an option, you know, something that they're opting into might, because I work with a student right now who that's her relationship to the piano is she's like, she tried it out and then she had a tough moment with it that her parents kind of encouraged her just to push through. And now as a young teenager, she's really like glad she did because now she's going to piano Mm. lessons and she loves her relationship with her piano teacher. And they really, you know, the two of them really like talk about music in a way that's very fulfilling and interesting to her. And she can play things on the piano and it's very satisfying. So I take it all back. I almost had myself convinced. Now, I think, I think I, as, I, as I'm listening to you talk, as I, I agree, like sometimes I think, oh, gee, I wish I'd done X, Y, or Z or someone had pushed me to do X, Y, or Z. And then I think to myself, no, actually, I, I know why my parents didn't push me to do things because I crumbled and I hated it and I would probably still hate it. But I think what we're trying to instill in children is a love of learning and being curious and realising that learning doesn't stop Right. When you're 7, 12, yeah. 18, that you can, if you have an intrinsic love of learning and if you really want to do that, then even at 50 you can pick up a violin and learn to play. Exactly. Or start the piano. Exactly. And it's that it's that we don't want to kill that love of learning and that's sometimes, sometimes I guess in those situations people have learned the piano and maybe the way that their parents encouraged them to keep going with it didn't completely kill it, but some parents or some people do have that completely killed out of them because of the way that they were pushed and hassled and they just hated it. And it's unlikely that they're going to get and pick it back up and enjoy it at some point. But I think everyone's stories are very different and nuanced, but yeah, at the end of the day, if we can try and remember to encourage people to enjoy the process of learning, people will then be able to learn new things and enjoy them or pick them back. Right. Because our, our, brains are wired to reward learning, right? We, mm. we get that dopamine response when we, when we learn something new and make a connection, the, auto, the uh, aha feeling, right? That's a, yeah. that's a positive reward system wired into the brain. And if we, can, if we can keep triggering that, actually, its ability to be triggered, it gets more sensitive. It, it triggers more mm. easily the more it gets triggered. So we take delight in yeah. In smaller steps of learning and, and, you know, see the world in a grain of sand it, it is, is that feeling of delight of, of noticing that look at how textured this tiny little rock is or what color it is, mm. right? Like those little frisson of delight, that's because that, that reward system is always like giving us positive feedback for having learned something or yeah. noticed something new. and. I think the real problem we have right now is that mechanism can also atrophy. You know, we see kids in uh, environments that are under-stimulating. It can be very difficult for them to get any kind of internal reward for having figured something out. Mm-hmm. And that's a kind of, that that atrophy of delight, that is what we read as apathy on the part of the child. Right. Like, yeah, like, oh, they just don't seem to engage with anything that might be because they're they're used to like being spoon fed progress by a video game or some extrinsic metric of progress. Yeah. Well, they need that feedback. They need constant feedback all the time that they're doing the right thing. Yeah. Because that's what a lot of kids need as well is that constant more. I don't know. They haven't been graded. They told me it's the right thing. <laughs> hey, th- that feedback thing just reminded me of an excellent story that we can kind of wrap up on. Um, there's this moment in tinkering school when the kids are receiving what we call tool training, which is this mm. like very 
effective process we have for training a child how to use something like a drill or a clamp or a saw, you know, of, of various yeah. types. And one of the things I love about drill training is it includes this moment that is where you're sitting with a child or a small group of children and you're, let's say you're working with a drill and you're showing them how to use this drill to make a hole and, and they're, they're drilling and then they're trading out the drill bit for a screw bit and they're putting in a screw and then they're, you know, repeating. And they've kind of, you know, now that you've sort of coached them a little bit, they've sort of got it and you've, you've sat back a little bit and maybe you with the child have made like a series of X's on the board. And you're like, what do you think? Can you think you can get screws into all of these? And they're like, Oh yeah, of course I can. And then you stand up and walk away from them. And what we know from having other people observe is most children like suddenly realize an adult has left them alone with a power tool. Yeah. <laughs> like, like this is, this is so unusual to them that they, there's a little like wave of panic and then a kind of like looking back at what they're doing and then they get back to it. And there, it turns out there is no better way to say to them, you've got this, I trust you, than to leave them to the work without saying those kinds of words, without mm -hmm. putting a bow on it for them, right? Yeah, of just, it's powerful. Yeah. So, yeah, that, how do we communicate it's in all of our actions and it's always towards them feeling that we trust them and that they are capable and worthy of trust. Absolutely. Yeah. It's one of the most important things um, that I, I think that we, we try really hard with children is to communicate that trust because everything else will fall exactly. in behind it, you know, that risk assessment and, you know, looking out for themselves and making good decisions and being resilient um, all comes from that, that real basis of trust. They rise up to that image, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and sometimes show us more than we expect, right? Part of what I love about Absolutely. that process is just how often like all of a sudden, you know, it, it's maybe a year later and all of a sudden you realize like, oh, here is a fully formed young adult moving through the word, mm -hmm. you know, or young person, yeah. you know, maybe they're not an adult yeah. yet. But uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, we work with kids as young as seven in the camp and at the school, mm -hmm. we work with kids um, kindergarten through 12th grade. And yeah. one of the things that we also emphasize is that uh, it's a very mixed age environment. So the kids are working with uh, lots of different yeah. ages. And yeah. And when an older student, like, you know, gives you that like nod, like you've got this and hey, mm -hmm. without saying out loud, like, hey, nice work, you know, but you can just yeah. see that they're admiring your work, like that's better than getting a hundred percent on your test. Absolutely. It yeah. is. It really is. And I, it's, it's something to, when you're in it and you see it, it's, it, you, it really does take your breath away. It just blows. Like time stands still almost sometimes when I see those moments, I think yeah. this is just so much more powerful than anything else that I've ever seen. We try to do to, to children, what we try to do to children yeah, I agree. Nothing compares to those moments. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, Gabe, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. I just have three little oh, um, yeah. real rapid-fire questions that I wanted to ask you just to wrap us up today. Let's do it. Um, the first one we always love to know is um, a book that you're currently reading or one that you would recommend that our audience might really love. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> just off the top of the head, uh, whew. I mean, okay, full uh, full disclosure here. The most recent book I finished was Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky. It's a science, it's the first part of a science fiction trilogy. 
about yeah, right. yeah and it supposes a human like humans traveling into space and things go terribly wrong and and and, uh-huh. and then what lovely things come out of that it's a it's an incredibly kind of anti-apocalyptic idea about the universality of life and yeah and so that's a really great one and then um i just recently read the updated um second edition of lenore skenazy's free range kids um Uh, book i don't know if you yeah so she and i have been friends for years full disclosure i guess again but when I saw the second, oh, okay. I saw the second edition came out, and I think the first time I read it, I hadn't. I was, I was really kind of speed reading it on an airplane and getting the gist of it all. Yeah. And yeah. this time I had a moment where I could just read it for pleasure, and it was just so fun to have her voice in my head. She's, um, she's an amazing advocate for child agency and free play and. Oh, that sounds right up our alley. I th- I'm sure I've read that, but I'm going to go back and reread it because I always yeah. have to go and, back and read you know, I'd be happy to recommend her if you wanted to have her on your show. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. Yes, I would love- absolutely. That would be amazing. Uh, yep. Yeah. I got to warn you, she's super feisty. <laughs> she's really. <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah. Yes, we love people that are really passionate about things. Yep. Where do you go to unwind and relax after a hard time? Ah, um, my wife and I have been paragliding for 30 years now and I do it as a kind of meditative relaxing practice so I don't uh I don't fly in the mountains where it's very challenging I fly at the coast where I'm like a bird soaring she flies in competition and you know pushes herself to the limit and uh it's just crazy it's not very relaxing but that's what I do for my primary relaxation Oh, and then the last question, I, I, if you can just briefly, because I know this yeah. could be a whole other podcast, <laughs> um, one thing you'd change about the education system if you could. Oh, my goodness. Let's see. One quick thing that we could change right now would be to um, do away with all of the metrics that we're using and instead use yeah. uh, evaluative metrics that are focused on growth instead of where you are against some fixed chart. Mm, yeah, yeah, that would be a really good thing to, to do. That would be a really quick thing we could do really easily. Vicki, just before we hang up on each other, I wanted to say, um, you know, if there's ever an opportunity to, you know, to, I, I would love to, I was just pulled up your website and was poking around. Yeah. I would love to come down and like do a, two-week sabbatical at your school and just be a member of your staff if that's a... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> that would be unbelievable. We would have you any time. Well, I, Absolutely. I, I think as soon as the, so our two countries figure out how to get the, open again. Yeah, the Delta variant under control. Yeah. yeah. So that would be amazing. And we also love to do um, something that is on in the, in the background for us as well as um, a loose parts um, projects that we've been working oh, on as well. We just haven't got. Yeah, yeah. so I think that that would be so, um, another. You know, just Vicky, reach out if you want to brainstorm around that and talk some specifics. I have a staff member named Daniel who's a genius with that kind of provocation. And if you know you 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 just want to yeah. like honestly, if you just want to play with the ideas, we would love to do it with you. Yeah. No, that would be, uh, we would um, absolutely love that Great. because, you know, it, we, we advocate for a lot of these things, but um, we would love to get other people's perspectives and experience in on it because it's not something that's overly um, done here in Australia yet. Like it's emerging, but it's not yeah. it's not all over the place. So we would definitely love any help and collaboration on <laughs> projects like that would be yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, let's do it. That sounds like great fun. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an absolute, like, such a pleasure speaking to you. You've just, you know, I'm, I'm going to come into the rest of my day just feeling so happy <laughs> that there are people like you in the world. Oh, thank you, Vicky, and, and uh, thanks for having me on. It's been a really wonderful chance to just have a free-ranging chat. I was 
such the really sorry we had to wrap up our chat. I hope you're just as inspired as I am to give our children more time and space and ultimately opportunity to pursue their curiosity through building and play. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, then why not hit subscribe and get our weekly e-candy straight to your device so that you don't miss an episode. And if you have a spare moment and you love the episode, why not leave us a review? It really helps us get those issues that we hold dear, find their way into more homes and educational settings around the world. As always, we love doing this journey with you. So until next week, stay wild. If you enjoyed this episode of Raising Wildlings, then we invite you to check out Your Wild Business, our signature business course for education changemakers who are ready to create or refine their own nature play businesses. Your Wild Business is the only program that focuses on the business side of nature play with sustainable practices, processes, and systems that will cut down your admin work, giving you more time to focus on building a business that is centered around your educational philosophies whilst working around the current legislation and red tape. And you'll become a part of our wonderful community of other education change makers leaping forward into the big, wide world of business. We'd love for you to be a part of it. So why not come and check out Your Wild Business on the Raising Wildlings website today?